Welcome to the Upper Room Community Church Podcast. Wherever you are in your journey, we hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit us at upperroom.ca. Good morning, friends. Great to see you here this morning. My name is Tony. I'm one of the pastors on staff. It's my privilege to, uh, to share with you this morning as we're in the last week of the series that we've been doing this month that we've been calling What I Learned at the Movies. And we are taking different ideas and different themes that we're seeing in movies that are actually playing right now. I know that one said coming next summer. It was actually a teaser trailer that was put out about a year ago for the movie this summer. But we're looking at different movies that are actually in theaters or have been recently that have some ideas in them that are actually really cool ideas and some good ideas, but even ideas that aren't good ideas. Even some ideas that point us to some God ideas, some ideas that actually point us to some bigger truths and bigger realities that remind us about who God is and about what he does in our lives and about how our lives are meant to be so incredibly different than they otherwise could be because of the work and the person of Jesus. And so that's not to say that what we've been doing over these last week is to say, if you need some good advice for life, just go to the movies. Um, Even though that's where we meet here on Sundays, right? That's not quite what we're saying, but what we're saying is, this is actually kind of a a spiritual um, skill for all of us to grow and to learn and to be so connected into our walk with God and to grow in our understanding and in our knowledge and in our depth of insight in the, in the scriptures that we have and in the story of Jesus and all that he has done for us, what does it look like to actually be so changed by that and for that to run so deep in our lives that when we go to something like a movie or when we read a book, or when we um, watch TV, or watch something on YouTube, or go for a walk in the park, or whatever. What does it look like for that stuff to run so deeply in us that something like a movie doesn't just become two hours of entertainment, but that our eyes can actually look at it with a different kind of lens altogether. And we can see glimpses and threads and pointers that point us to something that is actually not just a good thing, but a God thing. And we can see the work and the voice and the speaking and the activity of God and his presence kind of all through our lives when we allow him to work that deeply in us. And so that's what this series is about. And this week, obviously, what movie are we looking at? Can you all say it? Toy Story 4. Who has seen at least, uh, well, who's seen Toy Story 4 this summer? Anyone? Oh, so we got some hands. That's great. Who has seen at least one Toy Story? The Toy Story series has been out for like more than 20 years. So I'm guessing many, almost, there's a lot of hands. I know there's a few of you that haven't. You're like, Toy Story? What's that? I have no idea. That's okay. Um, We're all in different places in this. So this is Toy Story 4. It's the fourth movie in this kind of epic uh, uh, series of movies that's been going on for the last 20 years, and many of us are familiar with Woody and with Buzz Lightyear and with all the different characters that are in, um, in the movie, and they've actually changed children in, uh, in this movie as well. And so I'll give you a quick synopsis of this movie and kind of where it's going. There, the, this movie is about, obviously, all the toys, and they now belong to a little girl named Bonnie who's about to start, this is very appropriate for today, she's about to start her first day of school, her first day of kindergarten, and she's feeling a little bit nervous about it. So Woody sneaks into her backpack and he goes along with her uh, into uh, her classroom for the first day, just to kind of make sure she's okay. And during that day, Bonnie makes a new friend. She literally makes this new friend. You saw that weird, strange spork with the uh, pipe cleaner arms, right? She made Forky. 
And that has become her kind of new best friends. And so she, she brings Forky home with her in her backpack. And Forky has now all of a sudden become her new favorite toy, her kind of object of comfort on her first day of school. The problem is that begins to unfold, and what sort of the whole movie is about, it's kind of like what you saw in the clip. She brings Forky home to be her new favorite toy, but he's not a toy, right? He's not a toy. He's a disposable fork. That's what he is. And he doesn't even want to be um, uh, Bonnie's toys because, or he doesn't want to be one of Bonnie t Bonnie's toys because he knows that's not what he is. According to Forky, this is what he is. He's a disposable fork. In one of the scenes, he says, I belong to be used with chili or with soup or with salad, and then I should be thrown in the trash. And in fact, as Forky comes to life, the only word that he can say for the first while is just simply trash, trash. And he's actually looking all over the place for garbage bins to throw himself in. It's like he's jumping off the ledge of buildings, throwing himself into garbage bins and into trash. He believes that he belongs in the garbage. And so what this movie is really all about, it's a great story. It's the story of Woody and his friends trying to help Forky to understand. Forky actually gets lost because he's trying to throw himself out the window of a car. And so Woody goes after him. But it's this whole story of Woody trying to help Forky understand that, no, you're not trash. You've been made by Bonnie. You're loved by Bonnie. And because of that, you belong to her. And because of that, you belong to us. Um, but I think um, this is a story that actually has, I mean, it has a, it's a great story, like I said. It's a cool adventure story. It's got a lot of great themes and good ideas in it. But one of the themes that I want to zero in on today, one of the, 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 the ideas that I want to zero in on today is one that I just think is, is relevant to all of us, especially on a weekend like this weekend when we're, again, as, as, as we've already been reminded of many times, probably more than we want, we're going back to school, we're going back into life, all the different things. It's simply this. This is a movie that I think has all over it, just all of these ideas about what it means to belong. What it means to belong. And we heard that even in Forky's words, right, in the clip. I don't belong here! And maybe some of us feel like that in all sorts of different places in our lives, right? See, this is, this is kind of the story. Forky didn't believe that he belonged in this new toy family to this new toy owner named Bonnie. Um, and like I said, in fact, in all sorts of places, he's trying to throw himself into the trash. And the truth is, for the first little while, even the rest of the toy family had a hard time kind of wrapping their minds around this. There's a funny scene when Forky steps out of Bonnie's backpack to the, for the first time and sort of reveals himself to all the other toys. They kind of collectively take this big gasp and step back and they're like, what is it? What is it? Right? Because Forky didn't look like a toy. He didn't talk like a toy. All he could say was trash, right? He didn't act like a toy. He didn't even think he was a toy. Clearly, um, Forky's not a toy. But this cool story is just this one of like, okay, Woody actually understood something a lot deeper than that, a lot deeper about what it actually means to belong. And so he had this incredible quest over the course of the movie to actually convince Forky and the rest of his clan that, no, this is... This is one who's loved. This is one who belongs. And like I said, especially on a weekend like this, as we're thinking about what the next week ahead or the next month ahead looks like, I think this is something that we can all relate to. We all experience the tensions of belonging all over the place. 
And so I want to just unpack a few ways that kind of came to mind right off the top of my head because I think there's all sorts of ways that all these different difficulties and tensions and challenges of belonging kind of work out in our lives. We experience this with friends. Maybe you're here and you know what it feels like to have to eat lunch all alone and no one else will talk to you or sit with you or whatever and you see others talking and laughing and having fun together but you're all alone. Maybe you know what it feels like to ask if you can join in a game that's going on that a bunch of other kids are playing with and you're told no. Maybe you know what it feels like to, who here has a buddy bench at their school? I know my kids have had buddy benches at their school, a few of you. That's a bench that a lot of schools kind of put in place now where if you don't have anyone to sit with or to play with, you can sit on the buddy bench and everyone is encouraged to say, hey, if you see someone on the buddy bench, invite them in to play with what you're doing. Who here sat on the buddy bench and had no one come and say, hey, do you want to play with me? Maybe even, it's actually not just what people don't do, but maybe people have done some rotten things. Maybe you've actually experienced what it, like experienced people talking behind your back and saying some rotten things or nasty things or things that aren't true. There's all sorts of ways with our friends that we can feel some of these tensions of belonging. I think for adults, we feel a lot of this stuff at work too, right? And I think every one of those things are things that maybe we just see in slightly different ways, but not all that slightly. Um, maybe for those of us who, have, uh, who are working in a, in a workplace with other people, maybe you're someone that has experienced sort of feeling like your boss favors someone else over above you and has maybe treated them or given them special preferences or connections or whatever it is that they haven't given you. Maybe you feel like people around you in your workplace don't really value or see the point of the work that you're doing. Maybe you just feel undervalued and sort of pushed to the side. Maybe there are like, there's like kind of social circles that kind of run around in your, in your workplace and people, there are people that kind of hang out together or go, to, go on vacation together or spend weekend time together and then talk about it during the week, but you were never invited. You didn't get to uh, enjoy any of that stuff with them. Lots of places that we feel some of these tensions at work. In family, even family is a place that we can experience this stuff. It, it can be a place where sometimes we feel like that we don't belong. Um, maybe there's just a lot of fighting that happens in your family. And it doesn't feel like a place where you feel safe. Maybe you just don't like being around your brother or your sister. And kids, that's true for you too. This happens for all of us. That was a joke, I know. Um, adults, right? We have siblings that we don't like being around often. Our kids um, don't either, right? Maybe you feel like your family just doesn't get you and the things that you want to do with your life or the priorities or values that you're operating out of, your family isn't, just, uh, isn't even there at all. And for some of you, I understand that actually your own faith journey is one of the places where you feel these tensions of belonging because you're actually on a journey seeking to know and follow Jesus, maybe the rest of your family isn't there and they don't understand that decision that you've made and they don't understand the life choices that you're making because of that and your family feels like a place where you just don't belong. And for all of us, in lots of different ways, we experience these tensions in church too, even in this place. And we all know that. <clears throat> maybe you're here and you feel like there's an inside group and an outside group. Um, Maybe you've had just like a hard time kind of trying to connect in and get connected and get involved and get to know people and get plugged in and all that sort of, maybe you've tried and it's just been difficult. Maybe you've even actually made <clears throat> a number of different efforts, but nothing kind of really seems to stick. 
And we know in churches there can be all these other things too. Sometimes we actually experience some of the deepest conflict that we've had that's actually in our church community or we experience people talking behind our back or we experience all these things. Like the tensions of belonging are no stranger to this place here, right? And the flip side is equally true for all of us because sometimes it's hard for us, both kids and adults, sometimes it's hard for us to actually help other people belong too. Sometimes there are people who might look different or talk different. Sometimes there are people that just like different stuff. They're into different things. They kind of speak a different language because of their interests or their skill set or whatever. And it's just kind of hard to relate. Every time I try to talk to that person, I feel like we're just like missing each other, right? Um, Maybe even there's someone, um, especially in our, like particularly in this community, maybe there's someone that's done something to hurt you or that has done something that's just kind of made you feel bothered and you don't even really like being around them. We all have... At least one person, at least one person in our lives who makes us feel a little bit awkward or scared or angry when we're around them. And frankly, we just don't want to be around them. And we don't want them to be around us. Well, friends, this is all the stuff that has percolated in my head when I watched this movie, Toy Story 4. And when I watched it, it brought to mind another incredible story. And it's actually one that is full of all of these tensions of belonging. And it's a story that we have in the Bible, in the Old Testament. It's called the book of Ruth. It's the story of a woman named Ruth. And it describes this situation that in a lot of ways was actually kind of similar to Forky's situation, but it was a lot worse, okay? So I'm going to give you a quick recap of this story, and in a minute, I'm going to ask if I can have like seven or eight kids to come up here and volunteer, okay? I'm not going to ask you to say anything. I'm not going to ask you to sing or dance or anything. I just want you to come up here, and it should hopefully be a pretty safe place for you, okay? So I'm getting you ready for that now, okay? So here's the story. There was a couple named Elimelech. Say that five times fast. Elimelech, 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 Elimelech. And Naomi, and they were a couple from Israel, and they actually lived in the town of Bethlehem. Many of us are familiar with that town, right? We've heard it in the story of Jesus. Well, they actually lived there. But there was this big famine in the land of Bethlehem, and they were having a hard time just getting by and putting food on the table. So they made a big decision for that family at that time, which was to move to a neighboring country called Moab and begin to sort of try to restart their lives and survive a little bit better in Moab. And so they had a couple sons, and while they were living in Moab, both of their sons got married to Moabite women. One of them was named Orpah, not Oprah, Orpah, and the other one was named Ruth, okay? And some really tragic stuff happened along the way, because along the way, during this family's time in Moab, all three of the men that these women were married to both Elimelech and Naomi and Elimelech's two sons, all three of these men died. So now Naomi and Orpah and Ruth are all left as widows in Moab. And that's just the beginning of the story. This is like the story of Ruth in like three or four sentences. That all takes place. That's the backdrop. That's just the setting of the movie, or not of the movie, well, of, of this story. A little while after, we find that probably what was happening was that food was coming back into Israel, 
and Naomi decides that she needs to go back to her home country. And she wants to try to rebuild her life even though she's lost so much important stuff to her, right? Obviously her husband and her two sons. She decides that she needs to move back to Israel and begin to rebuild. And she encourages her two daughter-in-laws. She said, this is what I'm going to do. So it's what you need to do too. I'm going to release you from any commitment or loyalty that you might have to me. I want you to go back to your families. Maybe you can get remarried one day and sort of start over and whatever. But we need to part ways and you need to go and rebuild back in your family back with your families in Moab. Orpah agrees, and it was probably a difficult separation, but she agrees and she goes back with her family. But Ruth refuses to leave Naomi, and she makes one of the most beautiful, incredible, faithful statements of love and loyalty and commitment and and honor and faith even that is in all of the pages of scripture. This is what Ruth says to Naomi. She says, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. She's even making a statement of faith. This isn't your God anymore. He's gonna be my God and because of that, everything is gonna be different. She says, where you die, even I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord, now she's actually, um, for those of you that care, she's actually using a personal name for God. He's not just a random God. He's not your God. He's the Lord. May he deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. I think this is one of the most beautiful, incredible statements of faith and of love and of loyalty that's in all the pages of Scripture. But I also think that in saying this, whether whether Ruth realized it or not, this was a statement that if she were to follow through on it, it would set herself up for a lifetime of difficulty. A lifetime of difficulty. Because for her to move back with Naomi into Israel meant that probably everyone who she came in contact with from this point on in her life would see her like they would a disposable fork. She would be to them like trash. That's how they would look upon Ruth. So this was an incredible statement for her to make. Now, why? because she didn't look like an Israelite, she didn't talk like an Israelite, for most of her life she hadn't worshipped like an Israelite, she didn't act or live like an Israelite. And in fact, Ruth had three big strikes against her that would have made all the people of Israel think about her like trash. And to help you see that, I need some volunteers. So I need seven or eight kids. Boys and girls, please, can you come up here and you can help me out? Like I said, you don't have to say a word up here. You can just stand here looking like your beautiful selves. Yes, I see a few people moving. Come on, I need, I need like seven or eight of you. Yes. I mean, you can all stand over here to my left, okay? Ooh, I love it. I love it. I love it. And we got, we got one, two, three, four. Five, six, okay, we can make do with six. This is fantastic. Guys, can you give all these beautiful people a round of applause? Okay, can you say your names, please? Um, My name's Graydon. Beautiful. My name's Jack. My name is Jesslyn. My name's David. My 
name's Jacob. My name is Kyra. Wonderful. Another round of applause for all these people. Oh, this is so nice. Okay, so here's what I'm going to do. I need, I need, Graydon, yeah. you, Jack, over here, bud, okay? All right, great. And come over here. So you two, can you come on this side of the table, please? Excellent. And can you each put on these T-shirts? If you can't get it on, just drape it in front of you. That's okay, okay? All right. And you two, you, can you put on that T-shirt? Or you just drape it there. That's perfect. And Kyra over here. Okay, and you two boys, can you just sit down for one second, please? Beautiful. Okay, Kyra over here. You guys stand together. Yeah, right here. I love it. Oh, fantastic. Okay. All right. So, like I said, Ruth had three big strikes against her, okay? First is Ruth was a Moabite. She looked different to all the Israelites, right? So it was much bigger, though, than how she looked. In fact, the people of Israel hated the people from Moab. Why? Because the story goes, we actually have it in the book of Genesis. The story is that the Moabites came from uh, a man named Moab. They were all descendants from Moab. But Moab was the product of a sinful relationship between Lot... Some of us have heard the name Lot before. He was Abraham's nephew and had spent a lot of time with Abraham, and they were quite close. So there was Lot. Lot had a sinful relationship with his daughter, who, gave, who, eventually, or who through that gave birth to Moab. And the people of Moab were descendants, uh, or the Moabites were, the, were descendants from Moab. And so the Israelites saw the Moabites kind of as people who were dirty, right? As people who, had, who came from sin, and so they automatically saw them as lesser people. But more than that, they weren't just dirty, they were actually enemies. They had been at war with Moab on and off for centuries. And the people of Israel and Moab hated one another. In fact, they tried to call curses on one another and battled against one another. And some of them had lost relatives or, or um, ancestors or whatever to Moab. Now this was a time that they were at relative peace, but man, those wounds run deep, right? And so for many people, they would have seen Ruth, a Moabite, as an outsider and an enemy. Okay? Strike one. Strike two, Ruth was not only an enemy, but she was also a widowed woman. Okay? So, Graydon, I'm sorry. Look, I came prepared here. I got a towel. <laughs> I got a towel because the floor here is really gross. So we're going to put down the table. And, Graydon, I'm going to have to ask you to die. I'm sorry. <laughs> Okay, thank you. Excellent. Okay. <laughs> Ruth is a widowed woman. Okay? All alone. We have another beautiful Israelite couple over here. Here's Ruth now. She's all alone. Now, this, as difficult as what that experience might be in our time and in our culture, that was a way more difficult thing in this time and in this culture for a number of reasons. First off, in this culture, women were viewed by most people more as property than they were as people. They were typically associated as men's property. They were either the property of their fathers or the property of their husbands. Even the way they talked about it, their names <clears throat> often would even be overlooked because instead they would be the daughter of a certain man, or they would be the wife of a certain man, or they would be the, um, uh, the mother of a certain man, right? 
And so now, here we have Ruth that has a husband who has died, so she's all alone, and she's moved far away from her family and to any relational connection to a man in her life. And so now that means that she is not only an outsider and an enemy, but it means she's a nobody. It means she doesn't matter. She doesn't have anyone in her life to give her significance. Strike two. And then there was strike three. Okay, here's where I need you guys. Can you guys come up? Oh, we have two beautiful children to add to this family. All right, can you guys just stand behind your parents? Excellent. Okay, so now we have a happy, beautiful Israelite family, and we have Ruth all alone. She was not only a Moabite, she was not only a widowed woman, but she was childless. And as difficult as that might be in our culture, I know there are some of you that understand the difficulties and the challenges and the heartache that, are, that might be connected with a journey like that. Ruth, in this culture, the weight would have been way bigger, way heavier. Because in this culture and in this time, this is what women were supposed to do. This was their job. Their job was to have kids, to give their husbands kids, to help with the family business, to, um, uh, to uphold the family name, and to carry it on to the next generation. And in fact, we know that Ruth had probably been married for about 10 years to her first husband, and she had no kids. So what was she good for? So now she wasn't only an outsider and an enemy, she wasn't only a nobody that didn't matter, but now she's good for nothing too. And Ruth, in making this statement to Naomi, that I will go where you go, where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Even where you die, I will die and I'll be buried with you. For Ruth to say that, think of what she was saying. She was setting herself up to spend a lifetime as an outsider, an enemy, a nobody, and a good for nothing because she loved Naomi. Wow. Wow. Can you guys thank our incredible volunteers? This is amazing. Yes. Guys, thank you so much. You can give me your t-shirts and you can go join your parents. And look at we've got a raised person from, from the dead. Thanks, Graydon. So what I love about this story, what I love about this story is that it could easily could have unfolded to go on and tell us all these terrible things that happened to Ruth and to Naomi because of all of this terrible stuff that was part of Ruth's life. It doesn't. It actually goes on to tell us a very different kind of story, um, like completely opposite, like one that would be absolutely unexpected from anything that we would think. It goes on to tell us about one person in particular who makes some incredible moves to bring Ruth from being an, an, an outsider, an enemy, enemy, and nobody, and good for nothing, to bring her in. And I think that's super cool. His name was Boaz. And Boaz was a wealthy farmer, and he had a bunch of fields that were full of different grains, of barley and of wheat, and it was harvest time at that time of year. And so he had a bunch of workers that he had hired that were going through his fields, and they were harvesting the grain. Okay, they were going to store it in his storehouses for the winter, and this was going to be their next year's food supply. Well, there was, this, there was a particular law 
that God had given Israel, and it was a law that he had given them so that everyone would be provided for. People who had a lot, but also people who didn't have very much. And it was a law that said if there's anyone poor and who doesn't have the means to sort of put food on their own table, when your workers go through the harvest field with their sickles and they're cutting the grain and you've got people coming behind them gathering them, surely you're probably going to miss some stuff. You're going to leave some of the grain behind. He said, don't go over the field twice, God said. He said, instead, leave that grain behind so that people who are poor can come behind them and gather it up so that some of their needs can be met too. Because as God's people, we're going to take care of one, one another. So this was just a really practical way that God had given the people of Israel to sort of take care of one another. And so this is what Ruth began to do. And she began to do it in Boaz's field. And I just think that there could have been any one of a number of people in Israel that if they had seen a Moabite, um, widowed woman who was childless, gleaning from their fields, they easily could have run after her, chased her away with a stick. At the very least, they easily could have like, at least said, oh, I hate this, I can't believe she's in my field, but at least I'm going to grin and bear it, right? That's not what Boaz did. Boaz did actually a number of incredible things. He actually welcomed her to gather in his field. And in fact, he, he actually told her not to go to other people's fields. But I've got lots of fields, stay in my fields. He was not treating her as an outsider and a foreigner. He was treating her as an Israelite. Because this is what they were told to do for fellow Israelites. Boaz chose to treat her like one of his own people. Incredible. It gets more. He then tells his workers to look out for her. He says, you know that? Yeah, you can't miss her. You can't miss that Moabite woman. You know who we're talking about? Oh, yeah, we know. Look out for her. Make sure she stays safe. That's what he tells his workers. And he even gave her permission to drink water in the hot sun. We probably we don't have heat like that there, but they were working out in a field. There's no shade or trees in the hot sun, and he's got all these jars of water for his workers to drink. And Boaz says, Ruth, I want you to know that you can drink from the water jars that I have set aside for my workers. So now he's treating her not just like a fellow Israelite. He's treating her like one of his own personal hired workers. He elevates her. I think that's super cool. And then, as the story goes on, he actually invites her to share a meal with him, to sit down face-to-face -face at the same table and share a meal. And he actually even gives her some additional grain to take home to, for herself and for Naomi. In fact, she took home so much grain that in one day, it was probably at least twice as much as any of his workers would have earned for their day's wage. I love it. He's not just treating her like a fellow Israelite. He's not just treating her like one of his workers. He begins to treat her like a friend. Like a friend. This outsider, enemy, nobody, good for nothing. Boaz says, no, that's not who you are. I know that there's so much more. And these were things that could have got Boaz in deep trouble. Deep trouble. Like, what was he doing being so kind to this woman? His friends would have been talking about him behind his back. They would have been gossiping about him. He probably would have had one or two people, maybe more, to kind of take him aside. And like, Boaz, do you know who that is? Like, what the heck are you doing here? Get, like, get your mind straight, right? Who, what, like, what was he doing with this woman who was disposable, who was trash, 
to most of the people in Israel. But instead, over and over again, and I think this story is so beautiful, Boaz actually does things that risks and that actually took, like required, great cost for himself to bring Ruth, who was an outsider and an enemy, in to be um, a beloved partner in his life. He, he was willing to give up, like we already heard, he was willing to give up some of his own grain so she could take home for herself. Uh, I think a much bigger thing that he was willing to give up was his reputation. He was a wealthy, honorable, upright citizen in the town that he lived. He, people knew who he was. When he went into the town square, there would have been, hello, Sir Boaz, whatever, right? Now, to, to get this close with this Moabite woman meant that he would have been sacrificing some of his own reputation and good standing in the eyes of other people. And then more than that, as the story goes, I know many of you are familiar with it, Boaz eventually marries Ruth. So now she's not just a friend, but now she becomes his life mate and partner. And in order to do that, he would have had to pay a healthy amount of money to get the legal rights in that culture to be able to marry Ruth. He made great sacrifices. There was great cost for Boaz to love Ruth the way that he did. She wasn't a nobody to him. She wasn't a good for nothing. She wasn't an enemy and an outsider. He said, no, you are going to become one for me. You're going to belong to me. And this, the way that, the reason that this story was put in the Old Testament scriptures was because it finishes by saying, and Boaz and Ruth went on to have children, and they became the great grandparents of King David. And King David, for the people of Israel, is one of the greatest figures in all of their history. In all of their story, he is one of the people who is one of the greatest insiders, who is one of the greatest somebodies, who had the, one of the greatest purposes in all of the story of Israel. And they're saying, no, look what happened when this outsider was, was brought in to become an insider. She actually had incredible purpose. And as people who are followers of Jesus, we know that that's actually not even where the story ends. But David himself was one of the ancestors who eventually Jesus himself came from. Jesus came from David's line. And I love that, that Jesus actually tells us that these are the people who are part of his family. The outsiders and enemies and nobodies and good for nothings. That's actually the line that gave birth to Jesus in this world that Jesus chose to come in the world through. How cool is that? I love it. Here's why I think this story is so special for us as followers of Jesus. Because Ruth and Boaz didn't even know it. But hundreds of years before Jesus even came into the world, their story, and because of the choices that they made in their lives, they actually painted a picture of what the person and work of Jesus was going to be for us. Their stories, their lives, their choices were pointing. They were saying, look, it's not just here. It's there. There's something so much bigger that our lives are pointing to. I think that's super cool. Because just like Boaz, right? Jesus comes to all of us. He comes to all of us as enemies and outsiders. Many of us have stories in our lives where we know we were running from God. God was not a safe person for us. We wanted nothing to do with him. 
He comes to us as we are enemies and outsiders. He comes to us as we are foreigners and people who are far away from God. He comes to us when we make choices that just show how broken and messy and sinful we are. And Jesus came and lived a life and lived a kind of love that paid great cost to himself. Not just his reputation or financial cost. He gave his life, right? He gave his life so that we who were enemies and outsiders and broken and messy and messed up could become insiders with him, could become children of God, could be brought in to God's family. I, I think this is an amazing picture for us, friends. Listen to what, um, and read on the screen, what it says in one of our New Testament books. This is actually uh, from the letter to the Ephesians. It's in Ephesians chapter 2, and this is describing what Jesus has actually done for us. And I think when we read it in light of the story of Ruth, it tells us some incredible things. Listen to what it says. It says, therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth, that's all of us in this room. I think it's probably all of us. I don't think any of us were born as people from Israel. Remember that at that time, you were separate from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You see the great cost. He gave his life for this, that we who were far away could be brought near. This is incredible, friends. He made us family. He made us family. And like I said, even though this story of Ruth and Boaz actually took place hundreds of years before Jesus was born, their story, their lives, their choices painted a picture and gave a pointer to the ultimate purposes of God and Jesus. Super cool. Here's where the rubber hits the road, friend, because I so believe um, the same is meant to be true for us. The same is meant to be true for us. Our lives, as people who are coming to know and, and, and making choices to follow Jesus and know him more and allow him to have more leadership over our lives, our lives are meant to be lives that paint a picture, not forward like Ruth and Boaz, but they paint a picture back to who Jesus is and to what he's done for us. We are meant to talk about these things and to learn how to talk and, and communicate and share about the story of Jesus and what he has done. But friends, we're actually meant to live this out, to live this kind of life of sacrificial and incredible love out. And that is a big challenge, right? We know this, this is difficult. But it's a call that we have as the people of God to actually paint a picture in the world about what the love of God is actually like. That to those that everyone else in the world would consider plastic forks, that would consider outsiders and nobodies and good-for-nothings, people that we just don't bother to think about or that we just rather forget, no, the love of God see those, sees those people differently. And we know that everyone, every one of us can feel like that sometimes, right? But we also know that we feel that way about people too, every one of us. What is it like to allow God to use our lives to paint a picture of the incredible love of Jesus? That's the call that we have, friends. 
And it's an incredible one, and it's a hard one. And so because of that, I just want to encourage you with two really simple things as you go into the fall this fall. My first is this. <clears throat> don't give up. Just don't give up. Whether, you're in, whether you feel like you're an insider or an outsider, whether it's at work or in your family or here at church or wherever it might be, don't give up, okay? Because this is meant to be a pattern um, that is pursued and sought after for the long haul in our lives. We're always meant to be learning about what this looks like because Jesus refused to give up, right? We know there was lots of places over the course of his life where he could have said, yeah, uh, not quite into that plan, thanks. Looking to be a bit more comfortable than that, thanks, right? But no, he said, oh God, not my will, but your will. That was Jesus' call. And so this is meant to be a pattern for us that, man, whether we're insiders or outsiders, because this is a story, the story of Ruth that has both outsiders and insiders. Ruth was an outsider, but she made this amazing commitment to Naomi, right? No matter what, I'm going to go where you go. I'm going to stay where you stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. I'm not going to give up on you. And because she made that choice as an, excuse me, as an outsider, it put her in a position for Boaz, the insider, to make choices himself and to choose sacrifice and understanding and love to bring her in. But it required the choices of both the outsider and the insider. And so if you're an outsider, we, don't have, we, don't, we can't point the finger at the insiders and say, if they only. And if we're an insider, we can't point the finger at the outsiders and say, well, if they only. This is a call to all of us as outsiders and insiders to refuse to give up. This is something we pursue, and it never stops. It's never meant to stop in our life. And here's another really simple way to choose not to give up, um, especially if you're not connected into one. Here comes the home group pastor. Put on my hat. Join a home group this fall. It's a great way to actually um, make choices to pursue this kind of love in our lives and in our relationships. Because big church on Sundays is an amazing place to be. I don't know how different my life might look without regular, weekly involvement and participation in big church. We know all sorts of good things happens in big church. We're confronted and encouraged and comforted by the word of God as it's shared. We're given a place to actually express our own hearts to God and our own need for God. And he does that rewiring work in our hearts. And yet at the same time, I would say big church has some big limitations too, right? Home group is meant to be a place it's kind of meant to be like the, the training grounds where the truth that we learn and are exposed to and the rewiring that happens when we gather here in worship has a place to actually work itself out. It's not always meant to be a place that we can just hang out a couple weeks with some of our best friends. It's actually meant to be a place where we're choosing to spend time and share space with people that make us feel uncomfortable a bit so that we can invite the love of Jesus to so work in our lives that it can be expressed through our lives. Where we can learn patience and forgiveness and understanding and grace and where we can learn how to do conflict in healthy ways and we can learn how to care for people who really can't stand on their own for a season. We can learn how to be cared for. Like This is what home group is meant to be. It's not meant to be an easy place to hang out with our friends, although that's a gift when that happens. 
But whether you, you are with people who you really enjoy being with or not, it's meant to be a place where we actually intentionally pursue this kind of living with one another. Why? Because we're called to paint a picture with our lives of what the love of Jesus is actually like for the world. We all need to learn that. We all need to learn that. And it's why I love the story of Ruth. I think it points that to us. It's why I love this Toy Story movie because I thought it was a cool reminder of what kind of love the love of Jesus is like for us.